The book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers in Corinth who were being influenced by false teachers proclaiming a different gospel. As a physician cleans and bandages a wound, Paul addresses the contamination of the Corinthians' hearts and applies the healing balm of the gospel. Paul uses their real-life situations to apply gospel truths in real time. The gospel is worked into our hearts, causing us to recognize its deep implications in every dimension of life. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to transform our hearts, unmasking our own cultural idols, and recentering our lives around the promises of God. 2 Corinthians I hope you uh, are already open at uh, uh, 1 Corinthians. And um, I just was checking, you know, just in case, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, we're going to start at verse 12, where we left off last time. So let's start this way. Previously, in 2 Corinthians, we talked about suffering and the strength God has given us through the prayers of other Christians and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord. You remember last week, if you were here, we called him King Jesus. Now we are entering into the body of the letter called 2 Corinthians. There were those in the church who were against Paul and used something as small as a failed visit to judge him as fickle and uncaring and unqualified. And then, when he did visit, they accused him of being indecisive and unable to discern God's will in his life. I mean, whatever he did, he just couldn't win. It was easy then for his accusers to move on, criticizing his personal appearance and lack of speaking dynamics and difficult circumstances to discredit him in the eyes of all the friends he had made in the church in Corinth. They verbally painted a picture of Paul as being two-faced, uh, saying one thing but meaning something else entirely. So now we see how Paul defends his integrity. That's the important word here. Paul was a man of integrity, and he's going to defend his integrity. So there were false teachers in Corinth who were boasting from a wrong motive, trying to control the people in the church to their advantage. Paul could boast too, but he had the right motives. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, and here's how it starts. Now, this is our boast, Paul says. What's he mean by our? In this case, he's talking about himself. He was 18 months in Corinth. Uh, Timothy was with them a good time. Silas was with them. There were others uh, that they poured their lives into the Corinthian church, and many people were saved, and these were their friends and people that they loved. So he's saying now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you. Now, the you is really important here, maybe more than you think. Uh, it's plural. He's not aiming this at any one particular person. He's talking to a church of people who he loves deeply and has been hurt badly because of the rumors that have been thrown into the midst of all of them and confused them. 
And so, uh, to start again, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you all, with integrity and godly sincerity. And we have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. Paul talked like this often in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He said, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. He has a clear conscience. Now look at verse 13 and 14. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I in particular, he's saying, hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's always thinking about that day, that day where we'd first we die, then there's a judgment. For us, that's good news. Now, Paul will boast in the Lord, in the glory of God, even in weakness, so that the gospel can be seen. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul wrote, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's such an important partial sentence that if we just really understood it, it can change our lives. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Corinthians should be proud of Paul, not for human achievements, but for his spiritual power. And he wanted them to grow spiritually so he could boast about the glory of God in their lives. Paul is not trying to draw attention to himself so he can be vindicated. He is drawing attention to himself so the Lord can receive glory. So they will not be boasting about their great apostle, St. Paul, but in God, who greatly used Paul, broken, persecuted, humbled, as he lives his life for the glory of God. Now, it's interesting in verse 13 in the New Living Translation, it just reads this way. My letters have been straightforward, and there is nothing written between the lines and nothing you can't understand. In other words, Paul had no hidden agenda. He says what he means. We'll study it in more detail in chapter 4, but uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, uh, he writes, Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, in a way, Paul is setting them up. Uh, they may not have fully understood what he had been saying to them, but he will restate what he means and will make things much clearer in his letter. Paul has an eternal outlook in life that we all must emulate. 
I particularly like 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's a great chapter, and uh, I've memorized a lot of it. Chapter 4, verse 18 is especially worth thinking about deeply. Paul says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, if we just grasp that verse, it changes our life completely. So let's review the circumstances that Paul is in. Paul had written his first letter, and in that letter, he would, said he would be returning to Corinth and be staying a while after his trip through Macedonia. That's what he hoped would happen. And if you were here we, we, for studying, especially 1 Corinthians, he made it very clear as the will of God, he, this is what he wanted to do, if it was the will of God. But he sent Timothy ahead of him. And after sending Timothy to Corinth, something happened to cause Paul to make a quick trip to Corinth, which turned out very badly. There was some kind of painful confrontation, and Paul left quickly and wrote back a severe letter, a letter that we don't have a copy of. Now, we know that letter was accepted by the majority in the church, but those leaders, those false teachers in the church who were against Paul said that he was undependable, he was fickle, he couldn't make up his mind, and you couldn't know if he would do what he said or not. And Paul's answer to these accusations should encourage all of us. He did not like confrontation. I mean, who does? In this case, he clearly avoided it. Paul was not a thick-skinned leader who just blew over people. He was a sensitive man who was easily hurt by those he ministered to. And near the end of the letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, Paul uh, writes this. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity and sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. Now, the reason he's writing that is because these false teachers have given people great liberty. It's just terrible what's been happening. We already know about some of those sins from our study of, uh, of 1 Corinthians. In verse 15 now, as we go back to our text, Paul says, because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. What he's saying is I wanted to give you a double blessing, a double amount of grace here. I wanted, verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Now, this is an unusual sentence that we wouldn't really get because we don't live in that kind of a culture. Here's what he's saying. He says, I was looking so forward to coming to see you and getting to reassociate with many of you. I love you so much. And then I come to the point after I did some teaching and all that, that you would send me on to Judea. Now, uh, the way they traveled on that day, when he says, send me on to Judea, he was basically saying, I'm looking forward to the going away party. And then what they would do is they would have a glory time, and they would take Paul to the edge of town, and the people would uh, sort of like cheer him on, away you go, and then a small group of people would have walked with him for a mile or two or three, and then come back. 
And that's, what he's, that's the picture. He was so looking forward. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. And then he says this, and you can almost feel the emotion. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, no, no? Paul was making it clear that he always says exactly what he means. He doesn't say only what others want to hear. And so in verse 18, he says, But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. Now, God says what he means, and so do I. That's what Paul's saying. Notice in verse 18, but as surely as God is faithful. So he's saying, God says what he means, and so do I. Paul was making an important theological statement here about God. It's very important that we don't decouple ourselves from the Old Testament. There's a pretty well-known pastor in America with one of the biggest audiences, and he says that, literally, in a sermon, and I heard it myself. He says, we want to decouple ourselves from the Old Testament. It's too hard to understand. It confuses people. We just stick with the New Testament. No, absolutely not. The New Testament does add color to the Old Testament, but the Old Testament gives us the basis for the character of God that we must know well so we can trust God. And the New Testament gives us very much practical help in how to know what the Old Testament means and how to live it out. So I'll give you two examples. Numbers 23.19 reads this way. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man. He's, He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? The answer is obvious. Does he promise and not fulfill? Or Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. And we know from our study, keeping his commandments is not burdensome. We can do that now, especially because of the Holy Spirit. So here's the point. Paul is not saying to the people in Corinth, trust me because I'm faithful, I know what I'm doing. He's not saying that. Here's what he is saying. He's saying, trust God. He is faithful. And what we are doing, Timothy and Silas and myself, what I and Silas and Timothy are doing is in accordance with the faithfulness and the power and the direction of God. Paul had confidence in the faithfulness of God. Paul wasn't talking about self-help confidence. Most of you know my story enough to know that when I became a Christian, I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of self-help books. I read one every week, and I would read a self-help book, and I'd get all fired up. And then the fire would burn out, and so I'd buy another one the next week, and I'd get all fired up. And I was always talking about how we must believe in ourselves and have great confidence in ourselves. That's not what he's talking about here. He was talking about God-help confidence. The Bible teaches we should have confidence in the faithfulness of God and certainly not in ourselves. The book of Philippians. I mean, Paul wrote Philippians from jail. 
And it's not like the local jail. <laughs> I couldn't paint a picture as terrible as it was. Philippians chapter 3, he writes to the church two, three verses here. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. I mean, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day and of the people of Israel. I mean, I was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, no less. A Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, I was the real deal. I was a, a, the, 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 one of the best Jews you could imagine. And in regard to the law, a Pharisee, like that's like a doctor of something of law. And as for zeal, persecuting the church. And as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. I kept the law, he says. Do you want to be completely disappointed in life? Is that your goal? Just believe in yourself. Trust in your own abilities. Build up your self-confidence. Here's a quote you'll like. Being self-confidence is a problem that can only end in pride and fall. The self puffs up until it bursts into many pieces of disillusionment and disappointment. But being confident in God's plan and purpose for our lives will build up and can only end in peace and contentment, capped off with the joy that comes from knowing that God works all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. So whether we have cash or cancer, we can trust God and live a life full of purpose and eternal hope. Now that is great. Paul had no confidence in himself, but he had complete confidence in the faithfulness of God. That is what gave him the strength and the courage to press on even in the most difficult circumstances. On the other hand, the false apostles in Corinth were boastful, full of self-confidence, but short in understanding the faithfulness of God. And so in verse 19 and 20, Paul writes, For the Son of God, Jesus, who's the Messiah, the Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. In Christ it has always been yes. God's promises are always yes promises. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, that's the proof of that they're yes. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now that is actually a great passage of scripture. Paul is saying that all preaching about Jesus is a fulfillment of everything that God said in the Hebrew scriptures. That's one reason we need to know the Hebrew scriptures. Therefore, because Jesus came and revealed himself as God's son, the Messiah, in fulfillment of God's yes promises, we now have every reason to believe in God's ongoing faithfulness. Jesus is the proof that God's promises are trustworthy and that God is faithful. The fulfillment of all God's promises are proven by the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And we learned that in 1 Corinthians 15, in that whole chapter where we learned about our new bodies, but we learned also uh, what it really meant for the resurrection to be true. This is why 
we have absolute confidence in our prayers and can say, in Jesus Christ, amen. Now look at verse 21. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. There's a couple of things you need to know here. If you have the translation I'm reading from, I don't know what yours says, but now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm. The word makes is a legal word for guarantees. So I would say, I'd like to read it this way. Now it is God who guarantees, sure thing, that both us and you, that's himself and Timothy, Silas and you, so God makes us and you stand firm, it's a guarantee, in Christ. He anointed us. Now, in the Old Testament, only prophets and priests and kings were anointed and set apart for service. So he's saying here that God has anointed us, verse 22, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing, guaranteeing what is to come. So Paul says, us and you, us and you, besides meaning that every one of us stands firm in the faith by power of God, by the power of God, it also signifies that we stand together. We're all relatives now. We're all brothers and sisters. We're family. And we must live like that, and we must realize that. It would be wrong for there to be a split between Paul, especially and those in the church in Corinth. That would be a tragedy. And hopefully we can see that Paul will go to any length to be properly in fellowship with the people in this troubled church. What a contrast to how easily people leave a church today. But I want to sort of go off on, this, uh, on a little tangent here, but it's exactly what it says. Sealing with the Holy Spirit. Sealing with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? Well, some people call it the baptism of the Spirit. As soon as you become a Christian, you're baptized by the Spirit. You're sealed by the Spirit. And in Paul's day, business deals were sealed by placing a stamped imprint in some wax bearing the seal of the owner. The seal represented ownership and authenticity. We are first of all purchased and we no longer own ourselves in any way. I spent quite a bit of time on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It reads, do you not know? And most of you know what I'm going to say next. Every time Paul says, do you you not know? He's saying, you know this, don't you? Remember this. Do you not know that your bodies, these bodies, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Our body is a temple? Really? Yes. Who is in you? The Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit is God, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That's what we just learned from communion. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. When we become believers, we receive the Holy Spirit immediately. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 and 10, you, however, that's all of us who are Christians, are controlled not by the sinful nature. We still have the sinful nature, but we don't any longer have to obey it. Oh, yes, we will. And when we do, we can confess to God our sin, and he'll 
righteous and good to give us, to, to, to cleanse us from sin. But you, however, are controlled not by your sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then that person isn't a Christian, does not belong to Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, and you also are included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, that's the gospel, the good news about Jesus, of your salvation, and when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, which tells us that we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, and we can make, I like to say, God cry. <laughs> we can grieve the Holy Spirit, but he still he won't go away. He's still going to be there, and he's going to be convicting us of our sin. So going back to verse 22, and it reads, I'm just adding one word, which is an obvious word, and God, verse 22, and God put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, it's often taught that the spirit is a deposit like the deposit we put down when we're making a real estate deal. So the real estate people will tell me later if I get this wrong. I have used that illustration myself, but it has a great weakness. A real estate deal has obligations on both sides of the deal. So I make the deposit, the earnest payment, so that you will carry out your obligation, and you won't carry out your obligation until I make the deposit. That's not the picture here. When we receive Christ, God gives us the Spirit. The deposit is God, the Holy Spirit. We make no deposit, no deposit. And someone may say, well, you have to believe by faith. Yes, and we're told in the Bible that and even faith is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that none of us will boast. It's all of God. There are no dual obligations here. Only God has an obligation, and his obligation is to seal us until the day of, day of final redemption. The Spirit is the guarantee of what is waiting for us in eternity. That, if we can just get that into our minds, if I can get that into my head, it changes everything about how I look at life. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. William Barclay says this. When Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit as a deposit or earnest, given us by God, he means that the kind of life we live by the help of the Holy Spirit is the first installment of the life of heaven and the guarantee that the fullness of that life will someday open upon us. The gift of the Holy Spirit is God's token and pledge of still greater things to come. So this deposit guarantees our place in heaven, and since God is faithful, we know for sure we'll receive with the deposit of promise. Now, this is mind-blowing, even if we're not faithful. Oh, he'll discipline us <laughs> because he disciplines those he loves, and discipline sometimes isn't a very pleasant thing, but even if we're not faithful, he'll still be faithful to us. Paul based his personal behavior on God's direction and faithfulness. 
So Paul doesn't want to just defend himself against the false teachers. He wants the Corinthians and us in our church too to understand how God works in, in our lives. It was not because Paul was undependable that caused him to not visit, but it was due to his being led by the Spirit of God who always leads us in the right way. And so in verse 23, he says, I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Paul really loved these people in Corinth. Not that, that, that verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith. You know, we're not cult leaders, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. I love that little phrase for your joy. It's the fruit of the Spirit. We can always choose joy. I, I, I heard a, an illustration once. I haven't used it this time, but it's too long to read. But uh, it's about a man who was in the worst of circumstances. And one day he said, I just finally gave up and said, I'm going to choose joy. He had no reason to choose joy. He was depressed. He was all physical problems, everything. And he got down on his knees and he said, God, the joy is part of the Holy Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, and all that. So I choose joy right now. I want you to fill me with joy. And he says, and he says, I didn't expect that at all. And he said, all of a sudden, I just realized joy. And I went out and I started talking to people. Hi, how are you? And all this. And this one lady says, uh, hey, why are you so happy about? He says, oh, I just have so much joy. Why do you have so much joy? Uh, he says, because God gave it to me. And she kind of looked at him and walked away. And I read the illustration and thought, well, that's kind of unrealistic because I was in a really bad mood at the time. And I felt I deserved to be in a bad mood. But I've had to learn, and it's true, we can always choose joy. We can, in the worst of circumstances. You see, they were not dependent on someone else for their Christian life, not even Paul. That's what he's saying. And especially not the so-called apostles. The false apostles wanted to control the people. Paul wanted to serve the people. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, near the end of the letter, you gladly put up with fools. You could, let me just back up a bit here. Paul really loves these people. There's tears in this statement. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. The Message Bible just puts it this way. You have such admirable tolerance for imposters who rob your freedom, rip you off, steal you blind, and you put you down and even slap your face. You have to understand that Paul had really been hurt by these false teachers and their lying accusations against him. But if this had not happened... For one thing, we wouldn't have the letter called 2 Corinthians, a letter that teaches us how to survive joyfully in the nitty-gritty of the Christian life during these temporal times we are living before we go home to the Father. Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him, according to the book of Hebrews. We just had communion, and, and I always think about it. 
He went to the cross for the joy set before him. What's the joy set before him? That's us. There was nothing joyful about what was right in front of him, but he went to the cross for the joy set before him. That's us, our salvation. Paul endured the cross of criticism for the joy of those in Corinth. A soldier is willing to be shot so we can live. A pastor or leader or discipler is willing to be misunderstood for the joy set before him and her or her. The joy of those who receive the teaching of God's wonderful word. So, four verses left, chapter 2, verse 1. I made up my mind, Paul says, that I would not make another painful visit to you. Paul had already made a quick trip, and it was not a pleasant confrontation. It was almost more than he could take. So he says this. This is really something. It's like a question. It is a question. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? Can you not see the love he has for these people? I mean, if I grieve you, then there's, who's going to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? He's saying, I depend upon you. There's nothing more painful in ministry than to watch someone you love and have taken your, turned your, given your life to uh, to turn on you rather than demonstrate the loyal love towards you. It's a very painful experience. And then in verse 3 and 4, Paul writes, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. I, I can almost cry just reading that. It is not love to allow someone to carry on in a destructive manner. God disciplines those he loves, and we should also do so, but only as outlined within the Scripture. If Paul did not love these Corinthians of true Christian love, he would have put them out of his mind and simply tended to the large numbers of churches that got along with him just fine. Sometimes we have to risk hurting others so as to save them from greater harm. Children who are not disciplined become tyrants. Churches that don't warn people about the consequences of sin and confront those who are disobedient become weak images of the biblical picture of the body of Christ. Way back in 1994, James Dobson wrote a book that was controversial at the time, or at least some thought it was, entitled Love Must Be Tough. Uh, therefore, that's the name of the sermon, Love Must Be Tough. It's still a good book to read, by the way. If you've been hurt by others, don't ignore it. We may not have the ability Paul had to communicate so clearly, but don't just forget it. Do whatever it takes to face the person that caused the problem. And if that doesn't do any good, then pay attention to these verses in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Other translations say, as much as it is up to you, all that you can do, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the Scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. 
Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll reap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. We should surprise a lot of people who don't think much of us by, by loving them and find some practical ways to do so. Now, there's a time for everything under the sun. But if we are guided by love and truly care more for others than ourselves, we will know when to speak and when to be silent. In the meantime, God is not silent. He cares for us so that we have nothing to worry about or stew over. So walk in the Spirit, choose joy, and remember we're living in temporal times with an eternity far better than anything we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, I can feel the pain and the hurt of the Apostle Paul and how much he loved these people. Father, this, is, this church, the whole of the body of Christ, but we're a family here. And Father, I don't have any doubt that among us there are hurts. And Father, it's, it's, I, I know what Paul would say. He would urge us to do whatever we can, as much as it's up to us. We can't solve everything. We can't bring everybody together. And some people just won't listen and all of that. But help us to do good, to be loving, and to not bother taking offense because Jesus already took offense for all of us, so we don't need to be taking offense. So, Father, we can take our hurts directly to you because of what Jesus did on the cross. We did communion this morning to remember that, that you have given us that great privilege. You're our Father now. And you love the world so much you sent your son to die for us so we could live for you. And you gave us your Holy Spirit so that we really can live for you, that nothing's too hard. Help us not to live by our feelings, Father, but let us to live by the power of the Spirit who gives us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, and the self-control and ability to live that way. So, Father, help us to just admit it if we're sinning in our attitudes. I certainly fail many times that way. We all do. And then help us to care about one another so much that we overlook the improprieties that tend to come our way, and we pray instead and bless instead. And then, Father, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus, if you're listening, if you listen to this sermon, just... Pray, call out to God. Say, God, I really need you. I'm a sinner. I know Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. Please save me. And he will. It's that simple. It's supernatural. And if you really want that, you don't have to have to know all the details, but if you cry out, then he'll save you and you'll be amazed at the change that comes in your life. And then you need to find a, a local church to be part of so you can be discipled, so you can grow, so you can learn, and so you can practice the Christian life and on the way to heaven where the joy is always there. So we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.